Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is dedicated to the life and memory of the Russian bear, Ivan Koloff. I suppose probably, uh, other than the enduring part, like, you know, uh, no matter what territory I went in, I ended up being successful. It's just the idea of uh, uh, the wind belt, I guess. Uh, that had to be the most thing that people associate me with right away. Uh, that probably first, second, uh, the run I had with the Kita, I think right there now, because I really I was uh, entertaining to the people. They really enjoyed that, I think, at that time. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again i appreciate you asking me back so you said you were going to pinch yourself i didn't know it was that kind of show now i mean if you guys are in the privacy of your own home if you want to do these things good how you doing chad hey johnny cool man what's going on we're ready to go or what uh, uh, hey man what's up guys this is homicide oh that's my homie homicide with a big homie club yeah that would be it hey this is david penzer and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now... They bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. CW attempted to shoot him in the ropes. I think he is out. Come on. CW egging on Caprice Coleman. Most men would already have covered the man, but he's just playing with him now. That's the kind of man that CW is. Oh, now he delivers that vicious spine buster with his patented moves. Three, and that's it. Well, as predicted by CW, he put away Caprice Coleman with not too much difficulty, but Caprice put on a good show. You see both men were exchanging forms, but I think that elbow forearm combination is what put, C put Caprice Coleman out. Then you see CW delivered that vicious spine buster for the one, two, three. That was it. Wow, what a great This is the two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by our good friends over at That Wrestling Club. Head on over to thatwrestlingclub.com and check out the newest wrestling subscription box filled with authentic WWE t-shirts. 
And if you're attending WrestleCon WrestleMania weekend in Orlando, Florida, on Friday, March 31st and Saturday, April 1st, you can catch the That Wrestling Club booth at WrestleCon and see guests Kevin Nash, Al Snow, and WWE Hall of Famer Mean Gene Okerlund making appearances for That Wrestling Club. Again, it's thatwrestlingclub.com. For more information and how you can order your very own That Wrestling Club box subscription. And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad. And as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, today on the show, we are joined by an ECW original a guy who's traveled the road with a lot of our past guests, and it's time to find out the story of the enforcer, C.W. Anderson, who joins today's program. And C.W. Anderson, a guy that definitely is a part of the second half of the original ECW boom, more towards the later half as it got into the, uh, the closing days, the closing years, excuse me, of ECW, that 99, 2000, 2001 era of ECW, where C.W. Anderson really took some of the center stage of the land of extreme feuding with Tommy Dreamer, having some intense matches with Rob Van Dam, Steve Carino, and so many other great competitors of the original ECW. But with that all being said, C.W. Anderson still getting at it today, still in amazing shape and working very regularly down in North Carolina and Southern Virginia. And that is really awesome to see because obviously when you listen to this interview, you can tell that C.W. Anderson not only has an undoubtedly huge passion for professional wrestling, but it's a dream of his to teach it. It's a dream of his to compete in it. And when you have a story like that, it obviously makes for one hell of an interview. And this is one that definitely crosses over into the territory we like to call the epic territory where it is just a full-length feature interview covering A to the Z, as the Iron Sheik would say. But, John, as I welcome you in here, talk a little bit more about C.W. Anderson, what he's been able to do in his career, and obviously some of the highlights of what we have to look forward to in this chat with the Enforcer. Yes, Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling hits another one in the ECW library with C.W. Anderson. You know, it's funny, we were talking off-air for a while about when we first started, you know, we didn't have many ECW guys. We weren't uh, hitting that ECW market, if you will. Then, boom, all of a sudden, we have a total ECW library, a total ECW catalog, and who, you know, who else can you get from ECW? We had Carino. Soon, we will have another ECW original coming out uh, obviously we had tommy dreamer shane douglas just incredible so many great ecw names so many great ecw guests but throw out another one c w anderson the enforcer himself the extreme horseman the ecw original that he is what an awesome interview what a great guy i love talking to him and i felt like we could have probably talked to him all night if uh you know, if he had the time, we probably could just go, just kept going and going because such a nice guy, such a great guy, but also had a ton, ton of good stories to tell. And I loved, of course, you know, you're going to talk about ECW and being an ECW original and getting into ECW. So I kind of just love talking about his tryout match and getting into ECW and kind of getting more of an insight into ECW from his perspective. Because obviously ECW was kind of going strong for a bit. 
starting to you know make some waves and then he became a member of ECW right as it was hitting its stride and he continued to let them you know take on their little role and continue their little stride so I thought that was a, a pretty cool time when he entered ECW and kind of what he thought of Paul Heyman when he first met Heyman what Nova did to help him get into ECW so a lot of really really good stuff and a really good insight from C.W. Anderson on ECW which you would expect and of course when you talk about ECW and you talk about the Extreme Horseman and you talk about C.W. Anderson and who he was aligned with while he was in ECW, of course, Steve Carino and, and a lot of great Carino stories came up in this interview. We talked about their friendship all through the many years. And really, you know, we're getting to his kind of current role with the WWE and NXT and what C.W. Anderson felt about, you know, his best friend, his really good friend for so many years, kind of leaving him and, and going on to greener pastures and going on to the WWE. So we get some really good insight there on Steve Carino and the relationship, the friendship, and even Steve Carino heading on to the Performance Center, heading on to WWE and NXT. And of course, Chad, I got to mention this because this might have been my favorite part of the interview. It was when C.W. Anderson was at the power plant down in WCW. He had so many great stories on the power plant, the trainers there, the other wrestlers there, what it's like, what, you know, what really did the, um, the trainers down there, how do they really treat the guys, what do they really think of the guys, and kind of what do they really think of C.W. Anderson, did they think he was going to make it, did they think he was anything special, so that was some really, really fun stuff, some good stories, obviously, you know, he didn't get a WCW contract, we get into that, why didn't he, he was in the power plant for a while, you know, what was the story behind kind of not moving up the ranks of the power plant? What are the stories about Goldberg and the power plant? So that was some of my favorite stuff and just awesome to get his insight on the power plant as well. Love WCW, love getting into that kind of stuff. But then there's the, you know, the other flip side of thing is this, you know, why didn't WCW sign him? And why did ECW jump at the chance to sign him? So that was really, really good stuff. And, and like I said before, Chad, CW, what a nice guy. I mean, you couldn't ask for a nicer guy. And, of course, this adds another one to the epic category where the interviews go a little bit longer than usual. And I know that we love to say that word, and it's epic indeed. So, Chad, why don't you take it on away, buddy? Absolutely. And again, C.W. Anderson, just a genuinely nice guy. And I really hope you enjoy this interview because it's a very cool chat between three people and didn't really feel like we were formulaically just interviewing somebody. And I really do love that kind of interview more than sometimes just hitting each stop one by one by one. But obviously, this is just another one that, you know, we can just say we covered as much as we could. And when you have a guy who's as giving as C.W. Anderson was with us, it always makes for an energy entertaining interview and obviously a very fun listen for you the listener of the two-man power trip of wrestling so like i said today's episode is brought to you by that wrestling club head on over to that wrestlingclub.com and check out this month's feature box and check out some of the cool things that they have like their lapel pins and the different packages you can get and obviously like i said at the top the only subscription box outside of WWE's own subscription box where you can get 
authentic WWE t-shirts. And obviously that is a huge plus as well as some of the most original trading card artwork that you were ever going to find. And that is only in a, that wrestling club box. And please check them out. If you're heading down to WrestleCon with mean Gene Oakland, Al snow and big daddy, cool Kevin Nash, that wrestling club slowly, but surely taking its stranglehold on the subscription box service and tightening it and picking up subscribers along the way. And John, as the music starts to creep in here, hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to the enforcer, C.W. Anderson. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please visit our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. Subscribe to us on YouTube. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're on iTunes, check out the feed for some legendary episodes featuring the living legend himself, Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Ray Mysterio Jr., Jerry McDivitt, Brutus the Barber Beefcake, Mr. Wonderful Paul Ondorf, AJ Styles, and so many others. Also, while you're surfing the web, check out WrestlingInc.com. Yes, that is WrestlingInc.com. They are the number one wrestling news source out there, so please check them out. Also, while on the internet, go to ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, ProWrestlingTees.com is your superstore. If you are a super fan, and you can please check out our page while you're there, you can check out Tito Santana, Paul Orndorff, Coco Beware, Magnum TA, Buff Bagwell, and so, so many others. Follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017 as we hit the road and we come to a town near you. April 22nd, we hit Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the Icons Collectors Fest. Then, May 19th and May 20th, we hit the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Expo in Richmond, Virginia. Then, follow us to New Jersey as we hit Legends of the Ring in Monroe. So please follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017, because you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, a former NWA World Tag Team Champion, a former 0-1 IC Tag Team Champion, he is an ECW original and a former WWE superstar, he is the enforcer, C.W. Anderson. Please enjoy. ECW legend. He's a former NWA World Tag Team Champion. He is a former Zero One Tag Team Champion, and of course, he is an extreme horseman. He is a legend in his own right. He is C. W. Anderson. Welcome to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Glad to be a pro- uh, aboard to this. 
No problem. And, you know, with you, it's funny because obviously I'm sure you get it a lot. Either talk people want to talk to you about the Andersons or they want to talk to you about the Extreme Horsemen or ECW. But an Extreme Horseman member of yours, Steve Carino, you know, good friend of yours, good buddy of yours, is kind of making waves and he's all over the news lately. Obviously, he's headed to the WWE. So, you know, what's kind of been your relationship over the years with Steve Carino? Uh, two words, best friend. For 23 years, he has been, you know, I've spent more time with him than I have my own brother. And we've developed a, a fantastic bond. And it, it, he's easily my best friend. Um, we, you know, I've done 50-some tours of Japan. that He's been on every one. He's done, of course, a few more than I have. You know, we've been all over the world together. Uh, I've known his family since I've been in the business. You know, his son, Colby, I've known since he was crawling. Um, I go to the you know birthday parties. He comes here and you know, things. It, it's just I can't say enough about Steve. Uh, he, I've confided in him with, with a lot of stuff, and he has with me. And and even though he's my best friend, I consider him like a brother to me. He is, you know, definitely a legend in the business, and it's awesome to hear how close you guys have become over the last twenty three years. And you said best friend, and how do you feel about him? signing up with the WWE and basically entering in as a coach at the Performance Center. There's there's two parts with that with me. You know, the one part is the first is definitely I'm excited for him and I'm so happy for him because he is he has such a great mind for this business and I've been able, you know, over the twenty three years to hear him talk and, you know, we used to we rode together at ECW and myself and Jack Victory and Louis Dangerously and just to hear how, you know, and of course, being on 30-hour flights with him, we've had so many times to talk, and um, he has such a mind. He is such a good promoter, um, a teacher, and I am I couldn't be more ecstatic for him and happy that he's finally getting this opportunity to show, you know, what he knows in his business. Now, the other part of me is that you could say I'm there's a uh, depressed, sad about it or something because I'm actually losing my tag team partner and uh, you know not getting to see him on the road anymore, not getting to travel with him, um, going to his local show that he runs, PWF on the East Coast here in North Carolina, going to that every month and seeing him and his wife Jordan and his son Beck and Colby, of course, but uh, that's the part that, that's, that I'm really going to miss. You know, we did a show not too long ago where you know, it was like 4,000 people and um, I, nobody, I, you know, I put it out there. Everybody, most people knew that he was signed, but just how much he meant to me and how much I was going to miss. And I really had a hard time doing this promo because I was trying to keep from crying because, again, this guy's my best friend. We've been there, done that, shared a, so many stories, and him, you know, with this new opportunity that I'll probably get enough, won't get to see him like I used to, and that was the depressing part. But, man, I'm I'm really, really happy for him. It's just it's opened a new door for him and a new chapter in his life. So kind of when we think about, you know, Steve Carino making this move, and it's, uh, it's been really interesting to see him, you know, move out of being a full-time competitor, being very successful as a color commentator. Obviously, he's born with the gift of gab, and when we had him on over a year ago, I shared a memory of him uh, lighting up uh, me and the guy next to me at an indie show back in New Jersey in the late 90s. But seeing him as a teacher, I think a lot of people kind of overlook that. And now with him heading to the Performance Center, 
and becoming a really a true asset to the WWE and NXT. Uh, is this something that he definitely always wanted to do in kind of bringing his uh, his unique take on professional wrestling to an organization like WWE? There's, there's so many times that he shied away from WWE, you know, from being uh, signed when we brought back when they brought back the ECW thing and doing all the ECW hardcore homecomings and extreme rides. Just he, he's never really wanted to do it. Um, Steve's always he's got that fire, still got the fire to compete in the ring, um, as as like like I do. But he, he does realize what a great opportunity this gives him uh, uh, financially and to show what he actually knows in this business. And I'm you know I've heard he made a great impression in the little little tryout thing he did have. Um, if he had, you know, if all of us had the choice, of course, if we got the opportunity to wrestle or do anything like that, that would be our first because that's the passion and that's the fire we have, you know, we've had for so long. Um, but, you know, Steve's comfortable. He's been comfortable with Ring of Honor with the commentating and a little bit of wrestling, and he's, you know, run the locker room and helped with production and things like that, which he really, you know, that's, the, that's the side they don't see that I that I know over the 20-some years is how, Smart he is for this business, and you know, with the production and the, the matches and putting matches together and TV and writing storylines out for you know a year at a time, um, and he loves doing things like that. You know, we'd be when we went to Japan in March, he had all these ideas written out over the next year and was spitballing ideas with me and you know all these angles for all these new talent that he was bringing in, and and I'm sitting there and I'm. I'm amazed at just how his mind works and he's like you said he's always had the gift for Gabby he's always been able to talk um but the part they don't see is how much of a mind for wrestling Steve has because this this is all he's ever wanted to do since he was little was be a professional wrestler he and Tommy Dreamer shared that same dream and that's where guys like that thrive because they they know so much about the business they know so much about every wrestler I mean you're talking we would be riding and something would come up and with a store, some wrestling match that happened in the late 70s, early 80s, and he could tell you what belt it was for, what Coliseum it was in, and what tights some of the wrestlers were wearing. I mean, who remembers stuff like that? And Steve, that guy. That's a, uh, that's a true wrestling savant right there. And Yeah, he's definitely uh, going to be missed uh, for the while that he's, uh, he's up with WWE for sure because uh, I know, you know, by giving an interview or even seeing him at, you know, the Ring of Honor shows, he's just he's always ready to interact. He's always ready to, uh, to kind of give you either, you know, a funny look or a funny face or some kind of something. But, you know, you talked about ECW uh, and all those rehashes or, or bringing it back or WWE brought it back and TNA brought it back. And now, yet again, we're cycling it again and WWE's run a couple uh, ECW specials. And now maybe this is the kind of thing where, they can work Steve Carino into their legacy. But looking back at that, does it still amaze you that ECW, uh, every few years, just it turns out that it grips a new fan base, a uh, new group of people start getting into ECW, and it seems like although the original ECW has been gone since 2001, it's always uh, alive and well somewhere in the wrestling world. It, it seems like it never dies. It's, um, you know, this... Uh this January 7th will make the 16th anniversary of my I Quit match. And it seems like every interview or every show when I do these conventions 
and people, they come up and talk to me about ECW, that's the one thing they'll mention is my I Quit match. And they they talk about being the diehard ECW fans. And it's like, they, they're true. They're, people are right. You know, ECW will never die because it's always brought up, you know, that the same wrestling convention when I come out and I'm standing in the ring, you know, you got guys, I was wrestling guys from Luke Hawks' uh, Wildcat Sports, um, who was a great promotion, by the way. And, um, I'm sitting there and I'm getting an ECW chant from all these fans and even kids that won't even know way they were alive when we were on TV were chanting ECW. It's just like going and watching when I have to go to see the Rock and Roll Express wrestle. Um, kids are chanting rock and roll, rock and roll. And, you know, I was 12 years old, 13 years old when rock and roll was in their prime. So I know these kids didn't know who they were. And it's amazing how stuff like that just, it never dies. And, like, yeah, I don't think ECW will because it's like one of those old wives' tales that's passed down, and now you got to be able to see the video of, and the people tell you, man, that these guys from ECW had a passion, they had a fire, they wrestled when they didn't get paid, they wrestled when they were hurt. And it was that Paul Hammond could take a ragtag bunch of misfit toys and make it something that people still talk about today. Yeah, and uh, not not too long ago, Tommy Dreamer said on the show, when talking about that same argument, he said, hardcore, although it might be kind of associated with ECW for blood, guts, and violence, hardcore is a state of mind, and hardcore is what basically the ECW locker room was the embodiment of because it was passion for wrestling. It was going out there every night, giving it 110%, whether the crowd was huge, you got paid, or what. That was hardcore, was to go out there and be ECW, but yeah, here yep. we are again, another another cycle, and now we see guys like you know Dreamers out there. But you yourself, you're still out there. Uh, you're wrestling a lot uh, down in North Carolina, down in that. Uh, I guess you could even say the Mid Atlantic, southeastern part uh, of the uh, the eastern coast, I guess. Uh, but that's great yes. to see. And you know, I'm out in Virginia, so you know we kind of get the the bleed over of some of the shows. So I see your name out there a lot, but. This is one question that I have that I would love to get your take on it. What is the Southern wrestling crowd like versus that Northeastern Philadelphia, Queens, New York style of crowd? You know, we, we all always have a saying that I've, I've heard from other guys that have kind of passed it on to me. Um, and it, it, like you said, with the hardcore state, it, it was the way we wrestled, even though we didn't get paid and we were a family, um, the Southern, we always say it's a Southern style, and I always tell guys when they go out there, especially if they're from the North or things like that, I said, you have a Southern crowd. You don't have to kill yourself. Um, the Southern wrestling dates goes back to the NWA days where a headlock and an arm drag and one punch meant everything. And it was the story that was told in the ring as opposed to the moods. If you go back and, you know, you guys are big wrestling fans. If you watch Flair and Dusty, they didn't do a lot of moves. But, man, they had charisma and they told a story and they made you believe that they hated each other. Um, now, when you get to the Northeastern crowd, uh, Tommy always says we're part of the reason they're spoiled like they are because we did so much and give them so much. They expected that much. Every night they wanted more. They appreciated what you give them. And that was the, the difference is, is that they would let you know whether you're, you were appreciative or where you suck and needed to step your game up because I got both those chants when I started ECW. So the northern, some of the northern fans, or they used to call them spoiled, 
but they expect a lot out of you, and you got to hit 100 finishes for to pin somebody with guys, you know, punching 20 and 30 times and everybody throwing 50 super kicks and uh, 300, uh, everybody moonsaulting, and now they've, it's gotten crazy what you have to do up there to satisfy them. And down here, you don't have to do as much, and it still gets over as long as you can tell them a story. And I, I think that's the biggest difference is the southern crowds are easier to work than the northern crowds. From what I've seen and being able to experience both, I mean, growing up in the Northeast and New Jersey and, you know, going down to Philly and seeing a ton of shows, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy dynamic no matter where you see a show and then seeing some down here. It's a little bit different. I actually feel you can concentrate a lot more on the actual match watching something uh, down here a lot more than in the Northeast. But, you know, those ECW crowds and, you know, not even ECW, but if you go to a WWE show, I mean, they're, those fans are just as smart and uh, they're not as rabid, but they're as informed maybe and uh, passionate. But is there one venue specifically when you think about that Northeastern flavor of fan that you knew going in there to that building that you could either, you know, look at them one way and drive them nuts or you could say one thing and just literally have them uh, hanging from the rafters? It was the arena, without a doubt. It was one of the, my most nerve-wracking places to wrestle, especially when I first got there um, because of, you know, I, I was a big fan of ECW before I got there. Never thought I'd be there. Um, but seeing how crazy those fans were and the UF Duck chants and all the, the cheers and, you know, the Cactus Jack and Terry Funks for where they were throwing chairs in the ring just to create a barbed wire. But when I got there, one of my most nerve-wracking experiences was I never was good on the microphone. I was scared to death to talk, even in promos. Um, it took Jim Mitchell, you know, the devil, and Charlie and Ron, the, the TV guy or the camera guys, to help me to get promos to where I could talk on the microphone. And um, my first time ever live talking on the microphone with the ECW arena, and it was the night that I came in and Simon and Swinger was still with their little flunkies, and I beat all them up. Bobby Eaton came out, Danny Dorn and Roadkill came out. And I remember sitting there talking to Danny and Rokio or Simon and Swinger in the ring, and I'm shaking because I'm so nervous because I knew if one crack of my voice, one slip of the words, and they were going to eat me alive. My very first match some at ECW Arena, some of the, my buddies went, and they had fans beside them. And the, when I got out of the ring, they, they looked at the fans and looked at each other and said, well, that guy's going to be in there, so we'll never make a year in ECW. And <laughs> I was and the UF up chance, and I also got a standing ovation working super crazy. So I've been at both elements, but I could look at those people, and they would, especially hat guy, from up and down and one end, even 12-year-old kids cussing me. They didn't care. Um, but that's the one place where you you were definitely had to be on your A game every time. But if you didn't, they were going to let you know. Those silly fans are always, uh, they're always crazy, and they're always, you know, up for but, I, but, you know, even as crazy as they are and as hard as it was working in front of them, I always, when, when I started getting my little niche at ECW and started making a little name for myself, man, I loved working there because I, I wanted to go out there every night and prove to them that I belong and prove to myself that I belong. And they that crowd drove me to, you know, have the best match of the night. And that was like you were talking about a while ago with the hardcore thing that I wanted to relate to is when we were in the back watching everybody work, we would watch everybody's match, 
We didn't care if you had the best match of the night. We weren't out to stab you in the back if you did have the best match. We were happy for you. We sit back there like, you know, fans ourselves watching Steven to Jerry go at it or Rob Van Dam and Jerry Lynn or, you know, some of the nights when me and Dreamer would go at it. Um, they, I remember Paul Hamas made them all watch me and Bobby go at it. Bobby Eaton go at it one night because he said, you got the two best punchers in wrestling. You're getting ready to square off. I want everybody to watch this. And Rob Van Dam was telling me that. So it was like every every night we, as a family, we encouraged each other to see who could have the best match. And, and that was a, the part of the hardcore thing that I loved, that we were a family. And those punches are definitely memorable. Is there somebody, was it like a Bobby Eaton, where you kind of learned your craft and learned those awesome punches? Bobby Eaton, I was such a mark for him coming into wrestling. And when I first started, I still am a mark for Bobby. Um that I patterned my style after him. You know, I would do. I did the neck breaker when I first come in. I, when I first started wrestling, I punched like him, and I had the Midnight Express tights and stuff. This is you know, my first couple years in the business. Nobody trained me, so I didn't know any better. But I was still such a mark for him. I did the leg drop off the top rope at 270 pounds. Um, and the first night I got to meet him, I had to go in another room and collect myself. He's the first person I've ever been starstruck from. Um, but, yeah, Bobby's definitely one I pattern my style at, and I, I wanted to be him, the guy that could go out there and wrestle a broomstick or Ric Flair and have a five-star match, and that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be that guy. And at ECW, uh, you know, you definitely left your mark, like, like Bobby left his mark on the business for sure. But, you know, you, we mentioned it before. We talked about the I Quit match with Tommy Dreamer, and we are talking about, you know, some memorable feuds. And i got to talk about your feud with him because it kind of, you know, you were on the map, but that feud kind of, you know, elevated you to a certain extent. What do you think about Tommy Dreamer? Is that kind of one of your fondest memories of ECW, that epic feud you guys had? Tommy's still to the day is a really good friend of mine. and um, It was his idea to make me at ECW. Um, the night after my match with Kid Cash in November to remember in Chicago, uh, coming back and you know, getting high fives and, you know, great match and Tommy walks by me, and he goes, C.W., you're a hell of a talent. And he said, I cannot wait to put you over one, one night on pay-per-view. And it was the next, it was Master on 34th Street that we did because he wanted to feud with me because when Lance Storm left, he told Paul that we it's time to make C.W., it's time to elevate him to the next level. Um, Tommy was one of the reasons I got hired uh, because, you know, he was doing something with Steve Carino, and then Steve told him that I was a good friend of his, and, um, I won't ever forget the very first pay-per-view I worked. We were a dark match. We were in Chicago. And Tommy knew my story at WCW that J.J. Dillon and Paul Orndorff pulled me to the side one day and pretty much told me I didn't have what it take to make it in wrestling and kind of crushed my spirit. They said, you, you know, you're a decent wrestler, but you just don't have that look. And I got ready to walk out of the pay-per-view that night, and Tommy grabbed me and pulled me to the side, and he said, you're getting this match not because you're my friend, because you're because you're a hell of a wrestler. He said, I want you to go out there, steal the show, and take this match and shove it up those people from WCW's asses that said you would never make it in this business. <laughs> that kind of lit a fire sure. under me to um, to go out there and have a great match. I was tagging with Bill Wilde against Danny and Rokio that night. But I think my fondest memory was the I Quit match um, before the match. Tommy, he's sitting there and he tells me, he said, if we have a good match, he says, afterwards, I'm going to shake your hand. Um, 
he said, because I think the fans appreciate you enough that we can do that. I said, that, you know, that's fine. He said, if we don't have a good one, I don't think it went over. He said, no, nah, then whatever. So at the end of the match, he sticks his hand out and he shakes it. And he gets out of the ring and he walks back. And I won't never forget standing in the Hammerstein, in the ring at the Hammerstein Ballroom, and those 3,000 fans are standing on their feet chanting CF and Dub, CF and Dub, giving me a standing ovation for my match. And they chanted the whole way as I walked back. And I'm like, I'm looking around and I'm kind of overwhelmed that I went, holy hell, people are like chanting for me. And that was been my, one of my biggest mem- memories was Tommy shaking my hand and getting that chant from the Hammerstein Ballroom. But as soon as I walked through the curtain, Balls Mahoney was standing there clapping, and he said, that's one of the best effing matches I've ever watched. And he, like, gave me the big hug and the kiss on the cheek because he was a, an emotional person and um, congratulated me on the match. Definitely an awesome match. And do you feel like a certain sense of accomplishment, not only, like, let's say a wrestling crowd gets behind you and gives you those chants, but this crazy, rabid ECW fans, isn't it kind of like a different feeling that they're giving you kind of the acceptance? Oh, it is. The, 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 the night I wrestled super crazy, and um, he, uh, I put him over. It was right before one of the pay-per-views. And, we were, again, we were at the arena, and he Frankenstein me off the top rope through a table on the floor and rolled me back in and moonsaulted and pinned me. And I was still with a dangerous line standing. And he goes to the back, and I'm, chant, I'm standing there, and they start chanting CF and Dub, too. They're clapping and all standing up and giving me a standing ovation for my match. And, and again, I'm, I'm like, man, these people from the ECW arena are chanting my name, and that was a that was like that's a huge accomplishment from those people, those rabid fans showing their appreciation. Because as much as they hate you, they they really can appreciate when they've seen a good wrestling match. And to get them to cheer you it is definitely you know it's awesome. It's like another yep. experience just because purposely, you know, a little bit rough, whether they're in Philly or New York City or wherever, they're purposely a little bit rough, you know what I mean? They're they're purposely trying to, trying to you know, get under the wrestler's skin a little bit, I think, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, they'd love it if they, if they can get a reaction out of you or say something just yeah. so screwed up that you're going to stop what you're doing and looking at and look at them. And, you know, they, they've got you then, so... Um, but, yeah, they, they were always... That was always fun. I loved cussing at them, and I loved them cussing at me. It just... It just they're just an adrenaline rush for us. And what is it about Tommy Dreamer? Because we've had a couple of guys on the show, they kind of consider him, not, I wouldn't say godfather, but kind of like in, in that godfather role where he's like the, uh, you know, if you beat him or if you get over on him, you kind of are accepted. And, and if he kind of likes you, you kind of, you know, go a long way in ECW. What is it about Tommy? Is he just a you know, great mind for the wrestling business? Yeah, he's, he, that he is, he's, he likes him and Steve Carino, or I put him in, in in that same boat with the great minds and the angles and the ideas and stuff. Uh, it was his idea for the Dangerous Alliance and giving me the Enforcer moniker and uh, doing the Louis Dangerously thing and the mark on Paul. And he likes putting you over because um, he knows it elevates you. And, and in the end, the big payoff, of course, he, he goes back over, but it, it just elevates you more. That's what he's always done. We, you know, all the years he put Raven over and helped make, I don't like to say help make him, but that, that's probably one of the greatest views at ECW. And he did the same thing with Steve Carino, and he did the same thing with me. And he, he's never afraid to do a job to anybody, and he's always looking out for you. And just like his, his House of Hardcore stuff, it, it's not about him. It's about bringing another great independent promotion 
that fans can, you know, have a different takeoff of. So it's not recycled ECW stuff. It's something fresh and new with a mix of everything. And it's doing quite well, obviously. You know, anything he touches, it seems to do quite well. And he's always, uh, you know, he's always, not always always made a dent, but he always has his name out there in a good light. And uh, people take notice of a lot of things that he's doing. And, you know, you mentioned him kind of pushing for the new Dangerous Alliance and stuff. I love that because it was so cool because I love the original, uh, you know, Dangerous Alliance with, obviously, Paul Heyman at the helm. And then you had Rick Rude and Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson. So what do you think of, you know, you being that Arn Anderson role? Were you also a huge Arn Anderson fan? Before I be, before I was C.W. Anderson and, you know, I was just Chris Wright watching wrestling, I hated Arn. I hated the horsemen because they did their job. And they, they made you hate them. But once I got into it and, you know, and saw the, how great of a wrestler Arn was, um, I became a fan of him. And... Once they, he was his, you know, Tommy and Paul went to Arn about giving me the Enforcer moniker. And, and Arn's words were, well, I hope he has better luck with it than I did. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, I mean, if that's the case, I'll be a, you know, multi-millionaire because I think he had great success. And I really didn't know, you really don't know someone and know what kind of great mind they are until you've actually stepped in the ring with them. And this was way after a few years after ECW doing little things, little jobs for WWE, and he was one of the agents, and he got me in the ring with Kid Cash, and it was showing me just different things on how to be, in, you know, be that vicious, take that one body part and destroy it. And I'm sitting there looking at this guy in amazement of the things he was teaching me and the things that you know that he knew. And I was like, my God, man, to be able to have him when I was at the power plant or my little bit of run you know, at ECW. Um, but it was an honor to be, you know, to have that moniker. And even though we were put together as a comedy tag team to begin with, and it wasn't until we started getting over that fans started taking notice of, shit, these guys are a really good tag team. That's when things started taking off for us. But in the beginning, we were just supposed to be a comedy act. And it's interesting the way sometimes that, you know, things work out in the wrestling business. It's supposed to go one way and it ends up going another. But with, you know, with you kind of looking like Arn Anderson, I felt like it was like a perfect fit. You know what I mean? Like, I, I know you you were becoming C.W. Anderson before that, but I feel like in ECW, it really, you know, people got eyeballs on me. Like, man, this guy really could be an Anderson. Did you get that a lot, people thinking that you guys were related? Oh, yeah. I, I get it. You know, you have the, the people that know, the people that say, well, you're not a real Anderson. Well, he was smart ass. Ain't none of us real Anderson except Gene. Um, but then, but then you get the then you get the ones. Man, are you really related to Arn? You look like him. You got nothing. Yeah, you know we're cousins. And you run with it like that. That's what I've been running with. But um, it's just lucky I, I look like him. Even when I got the Anderson name, even though I didn't have a beard at the time, I had a goatee. I looked more like Big Boss Man because I was two hundred seventy pounds and I looked just like Boss Man. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I got, I got that a lot with them thinking that we're all related. I guess any guy with a bald head and a, a red beard can pass as one, I guess. <laughs> but it's it's always good when if you know when you're kind of emulating or you you're taking an Anderson name that you're able to pull off that spinebuster. Did you watch a lot of arm mm-hmm. tape to be able to nail that spinebuster the way you do? To some extent, and I don't know what I how I come up with where 
because I always tell people they always, you know, Arn's always going to say he has the best combo, so I always say, well, he invented it and I perfected it. Um, that's what I always tell people. And um, then uh, because I got to where I could hit and push off and stand back up to my feet from it, I don't know where I come up with that, but I guess that's what I felt like took mine to the next level. And I think it was being able to wrestle Balls Mahoney and give him one and push off his big ass at the time to get me up there like that. Um, but it was just it was coincidence that I punched. It was coincidence I punched left-handed, even though I throw forearms right-handed. I do other things right-handed. I just punched left-handed. That was a coincidence. And um, but I didn't want to be such a copycat of him. That's why I did a lot of different things because I just took the spine buster out of the Anderson respect and you know the punch and took that to another level because Sergeant Buddy Parker always said I had the best punch in wrestling. Um, so he would always tell me, you know, you only punch one time because it is that good and just use it as a weapon instead of, you know, you got guys punching 100 times, doing 100 moves, and they're just beating yourself in the head. So if you use it one time, it means something. If you people could go back and watch a lot of my ECW stuff and see one time that I punched, it always got a reaction because, again, it meant something. Um, so, yeah, that, that, it, was, it was good that um, I was able to get that blessing from Arm and run with it in the fans. Even though every everyone I went off give me hell for running an Anderson name, it was just more things that driven that drove me to you know, basically because uh, like I told him one time I said I didn't walk in uh, Arn's footsteps. I brought my you know, I didn't have, I brought my own shoes to have make my own footsteps. Huh. And it's funny that with ECW you hear a lot of like fans that aren't too familiar with it or maybe outsider fans saying Oh, there's not uh, psychology involved, but when you know you listen to you and you're you're even going as far as saying making your punch mean something. I mean, don't you think yeah. to an extent that ECW is kind of underrated as far as a lot of you, you know you and a lot of the guys having that psychology? I think so. I think when they they look at a lot of them look at us, they just look at the tables, the chairs, the blood, the barbed wire. Because when you talk of a lot of the greats. ECW matches, you know, a lot of it up there is with Sabu and Terry Funk's Born to Be Wired, and you know, a lot of the Eliminators and uh, Natural Born or the, the gangsters and guys like that that just Raven and Dreamer shooters, just so much blood. But they they never really get to look at the Guerrero, Benoit, Malenko's, um, the Chris Jericho's that when they ran through the mat, the five star matches they were having, the you know, classic wrestling. Um, that's the psychology of it. And, you know, sometimes you look and say our psychology was a little lax because we were just sometimes, you know, 28-year-old kids going 100 miles an hour. Um, but I think we did have a, a lot of psychology, and we tried to implement it in everything, but we always get looked at, as you said earlier, the hardcore blood and gut stuff, and that's what we'll pretty much always be remembered as. But obviously, you know, there's a, there's a million other facets to ECW, and especially your career. We know we talked about the Tommy Dreamer feud, but you had a nice feud with Rob Van Dam for a while, too, and he mm-hmm. is a total wild card. I mean, he, nobody wrestles like him. Nobody acts like him. He's totally different. So how were you able to mesh well or so well with Rob Van Dam? I don't really know. It was, it was, that was you know, super crazy I meshed well with. Uh, Jerry Lynn was the same way, and Rob, he and I, our styles, even you think they would clash it's the same way with Kid Cash, but somehow it just it worked well. And the first night I worked Rob Van Dam, we were in Chicago, and uh, Tommy comes up to me 
because I was waiting to see who I was around. He said, he said, CW, it's you and Van Dam tonight. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm sitting there I'm already nervous. And he just told me who I'm wrestling. He said, Paul said that um, if you have a good match with him, he's, he's going to be watching. If you have a good match with Rob, you're going to go far in ECW. And if you don't, well, you know, it's whatever. And he walks off. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Tell me that. So I go out there, and we have, a, we have a fantastic match. And every time I wrestle Rob, it was always, you know, show still or, or close to it. We had one in... Canada, that was, I consider, the best match, um, even though I like, got one of the worst shoulder stingers and couldn't hardly continue from one of his kicks. Um, but I like working with Rob because, like you said, he was a wild card and he was so athletic and so acrobatic um, that it, no matter what we did, I mean, we'd always have great matches. And the same way with Kid Cash, me and Kid Cash would beat the hell out of each other every night and have fun doing it. And same thing with Super Crazy just different styles. And I always say it's that airborne versus infantry because I ain't getting up on the top rope. So I'll let them do it. I just lay there and catch them. <laughs> Sometimes that is the best strategy. Yeah, it, it is. That would keep you from getting hurt. With a lot of those guys, some of them are definitely underrated. And I feel like another guy you wrestled, uh, even for the ECW title at one point, uh, Jerry Lynch super underrated guy, another guy you were able to, you know, have great matches with. What are your thoughts on, you know, working with Jerry? I was, Jerry was, Jerry's another one that's a great mind, and it was all, like, he was a very underrated wrestler. He, he, he and uh, Justin Credible were the ones that taught me about psychology, uh, because one night I watched him wrestle at Anarchy Rules for the belt, and I was so enamored, so blown away with how they finished the match, and after told Jerry, I said, I want to learn that. He said, learn what? I said, how y'all work that go home? Because I was enthralled, and, you know, I knew who was going to win, but I was still amazed with it. And, and then I started working a program with him, and he started teaching me. And he was so easy to work, and he was so smart. And one of the things I always loved about Jerry was me being the Anderson and always working an arm. When it was time for him to get his shine to go home, he always sold the arms. So many kids nowadays will forget that, that, you know, you can be beating the hell out of them with one body part, but when it's time for them to get their moves in, they completely forget about selling and selling that one part, and, and Jerry wouldn't do it. His psychology, and there again, we're back on that psychology with him remembering little things like that was always, you know, always on point. And the fans, man, they just loved him because, his matches, you know, his matches with RBD is what kind of helped put him on the map there at ECW. So I, I would, every night, and again, I, I looked at it like working him was a night off. When I worked with Rob, I knew I was going to be sore the next day, but it was still good. When it was uh, super crazy, a little bit sore, Kid Cash a little bit sore, but Jerry Lynn, I knew it was, it was we were going to have a really good match, and it was a night off because I knew he was going to take care of me and I was going to take care of him. This is kind of a weird question, but I'm always curious with some of the wrestlers. I mean, you really never know the answer. Did you ever want to be the ECW champion? I know some guys, you know, they're, they're like, oh, the titles don't mean anything. But did that kind of mean something to you? Because, I mean, you did have a couple of title matches, which means that you're in the main event or you're very important on the card. But did you want to have the ECW title at any point? I, I did. And the, the, the plan was the next pay-per-view. Um, I was told before my I quit match that, I was going to be the next television champion because they were taking it from Rhino and because he was the world, going to be the world champion and it was going to be me and Nova at the next pay-per-view and I was going to win it and then run with that before 
you know, eventually, because Paul was pushing me to be the world heavyweight champ because he always gave Joey the Iggy that, you know, that and Anderson never held a world title. And that's that was the thing they were going to run with was I was I was going to be the first Anderson to be to be the world champion, which was going to be great because you know I, I love the ECW world title and that title and that was kind of you know will be an honor for me to carry that belt because I was because one night after my quit match Paul pulls me to the side and he says I heard there's rumors of you going to WCW. I said huh, well this is the, I said this is, this is the first I'm hearing about it and he said. You're not going? I said, no. I said, you know, you guys give me my job because, of, you know, I am who I am. I said, I'm loyal to you guys. He said, so you're not leaving me. I said, Paul, as long as you want me here at ECW, I'm not leaving. That's one thing that how I was grew up is being loyal to the people that give me jobs like that. I said, I was planning on staying. So yeah, I would I would have never left ECW. I was comfortable there. I was having a, a great time. It felt like I was going to my second family every weekend that I wasn't going to work. I would even say that. But I, I would always go visit my mom before I fly out of town. And um, I said, well, it's time to go to work. She said, you're not going to work. You're going to see your second family. I said, oh, yeah, you're right. It never felt like a job. It felt it was like a vacation every weekend with these guys. And that's funny because... WCW, you know, obviously the PowerPoint and J.J. Dillon, Paul Wunder said that you would never make it at WCW. So were those rumors actually out there? Was it true what Paul was saying about those, you know, WCW wanting you to basically jump ship? I have never, they would never contacted me about about that. Um, it would have <laughs> took a hell of a amount of money for me to go back, go back to that place because when I was at the power plant, I was miserable. Um, I was underappreciated. I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm just, Trying, I paid money to learn how to wrestle to get my skills fine-tuned, and I'm in there training guys. Sergeant Buddy Parker would send me guys to train, Mike Sanders, Elix Skipper, Lash LaRue, some of the Natural Born Thrillers, Chuck Palumbo. He would go go work with CW, let him show you a couple of things. And here I am. I won't get paid to train, but he'd be over there <laughs> teaching Goldberg something or, or be working with somebody else. And you know, they only had three rings, and Sarge would be in one ring. They'd be painting the, the nitro canvas or the thunder canvas for the next show in the other ring. So it left the one ring, and I'm in there teaching guys. I, one, of the guys one of the things was Elix and those guys come up to me one day and said, CW, teach me how to punch. I said, all right. So we get in the ring, we're working on things, and Winter walks by. He says, what are y'all doing? He says, we're learning how to punch. Mike said, don't punch. He said, well, CW does. He said, well, CW is the exception. If you can't punch like him, then don't punch. So I would, that's the things I would do is be teaching guys moves and stuff like that, and here I am trying to get, learn how to train. But, no, I would have never never left ECW go back to WCW. I kind of didn't think so with, uh, you know, some of those comments. You know, you said they crushed your spirit, and they were kind of rude to you, but yet you're helping train some of the guys. So their logic got oh, that was before. Was that, that's, that, was the last, that was the last straw with and when they did that, it was I was training these guys, and then one day Paul Ondorf, J.J. Dillon came to the power plant to see what kind of talent they had. There's 30 of us there, and they had no idea. So they paired us all up with, with matches, and I got paired up with my buddy Curtis White, who ran his toad, and they're watching these matches, and he and I, when we did our match, the guys were like on their feet, like they were fans, and even Brad Armstrong, um, who I had 
mad respect for when he got he and I got through working so and I got through working he comes up he says that was a great match he said that was like ECW style he said that was phenomenal and then right then that's when JJ and Paul came and pulled me to the side and told me that and that was kind of, I think that was the last time if one of the last times I was at the power plant before my little tryout deal with ECW. So before that, yes, I was training them. But after that time, I was, you told my spirits crushed. Yeah, curtail, you know, something you've been working your life or your, you know, so many years to, to perfect, and they tell you that. And I definitely want to get back to ECW one second, but the WWE Power Plant always, you know, it's so fascinating to me. I mean, they, years ago they did that special there where it looked like the trainers were literally trying to, like, break the guy almost like uh, like Army-style military training. It, it, it just always fascinated me. And you always see, you know, big-time names come out of there, too. Like, I mean, Goldberg came out of there. Uh, like, the guy, like Mike Sanders, all the thrillers, Jindrak, O'Hare. Mm-hmm. So what was it actually like down there at the power plant? It seems like a tough nut to crack. Um, it, it was three days of hell. And, uh there was 36 people that started in my class. And by the end of the first day, there was six people left. Whoa. The, end of the, second, the end of the second day, there was only four of us left. And then all four of us finished. And the other three guys that finished with me went to Paris Island boot camp. And they said Paris Island was like going to a carnival compared to what the three days we went through. It had like a 96, 97% failure rate. You would get there on Wednesday, or you would get there, and your first the first day was Wednesday. You had to be there by 8.30. You stretched from 8.30 to 9 o'clock. About 9 o'clock is when Sarge would walk in the door, throw his bag, start cussing, and the other students that were already there, like Samson, uh, Big Ron, T-Rex, uh, Toad, and Lodi, um, guys like that that had already been through, they were there standing behind you because what you did was you got around in a circle you got in, he would scream at you to run and get, get grab these five gallon buckets and you had to put them behind you and he would sit there and you start doing free Hindu squats free squats and you had to touch that bucket each time and count with your arms straight out you would do 30 50 75 100 then you would drop down to your stomach knock out 30 40 push-ups and jump back up, squats again. And if he caught anybody not touching their bucket, you started over. If he heard not one person count, you started over. Guys were having to hold on to the ring to do squats. Um, you did that from 9 till about 11, 11.30. Then he took you outside and ran you for an hour. Wind sprints. You, had, you were in groups. And if you were the last person to come back in your group, you had to knock out 50 squats and be ready to go again by the time your group sprinted again. You sprint forward, you do the side-to-side karaoke, as they call it, you run backwards. Um, then you go back inside, he give you uh, like a minute to grab a drink of water. Then it was lunchtime, you got 20 minutes, and then it was back at it again. You got in the ring, you ran the ropes. He didn't teach you how to run the ropes, you ran the ropes. Um, and you ran through three rings. And you were never fast enough to get in the ring, and you'd have you back out, and you'd be doing squats and push-ups. At the end of the first day, you averaged about 2,000 squats and about five or 600 push-ups. So your your arms and legs were dead by the end of the day. And then you turned around, and you did it all over again. If he thought you were going to quit, like the second day, he thought, no, excuse me, the first day near the end of the day, he thought I was going to quit. Um, 
So he got me in the middle of the class, told me to lay on my back, and my buddies had smarted me up to what he was going to say. If He said, if you ever think he's going to break you, he'll get you in the middle of the ring and he'll tell you to do this, and you do not say it. So what he does was he gets you in the middle, he'd lay you on your back, he'd say, kick your arms and legs. He said, and when you did that, he said, now say I'm a dying cockroach, sir. So he got me in the middle, your arms and legs. I said, kiss my ass. He said, kick your fucking arms and legs. I said, I'm not doing it. He said, say I'm a dying cockroach. I said, kiss my ass, Sarge. I'm not saying it. And he got me back up. He was My buddy Toad was actually the one behind me. And Toad said, as I'm walking back, Sarge had this kind of like smirk on his face, like, all right, CW is going to make it. And he looks at Toad, and Toad kind of gave it away that he told him, and he's like, you motherfucker, because you know how Sarge always talked with that gruff voice. He started cussing us again, and it was more squats and more push-ups. And then by the end of the third day, when there was four of us, they laid you at once, they laid you down, and they tell you that you've passed, um, which was a great, it was like a big relief. Um, I remember Lodi had to drive home that day, and I was, I was, I passed out from my, my exhaustion. And you go past your breaking point with your body. And he said I was waking up screaming Sarge's name from where I was passed out because he was still screaming at me in my dreams. Um, they let me out one time to throw up, on, throw up on the side of the road, and I threw up so hard that I fell down in the embankment down along Interstate, uh, whatever it was, 20, that we were going back home. They had to go drag me out of it because I was so dehydrated. It was the worst thing. If somebody, if somebody told me, see, we'll give you, you know, a million dollars if you'll go through those three days again. I ah, no thanks. I'll go work at McDonald's. I'm not going <laughs> to do that again. It now, was every bit. Old... That could... Go ahead. I was going to say, this may sound crazy, but uh, is it was that necessary? No. Nah. But it was, in their mind, the way Sarge explained it, because I'm telling you, the, the three days I was there, I hated that man. Everybody hates Sarge. But once I came back and started training, he's a completely different person, and I give him and Pez Wally, God rest his soul, and Mike Winter the credit for turning me into the person that they saw people get to see on TV because I was untrained. I didn't know how to sell. I didn't know what psychology was. And when I went about to the power plant, Sarge took me under his wing and Pez Wally and molded me, taught me psychology, um, or help me. I knew some some about it from listening to Ivan Koloff and Wahoo Big Daniel with them talk, but they took it to a whole nother level and made you know, made sense of things for me. Um and but their Sarge's explanation was he didn't want somebody coming sitting on the couch saying, Man, I can do that and go and start training as a wrestler like what most people knew do nowadays. That's why you have so many bad wrestlers out there. Um it's because he didn't want any couch potato being able to do it. He wants somebody that had the heart. You know, um, Big Show went through the power plant tryout, but they knew he was going to be something, so they coddled him through it. They helped him get through it because if he was just a nobody, he would have never made it. I had guys, bodybuilders um, that come through there that had fantastic looks. They just didn't have the heart. They were gone after the first hour. So that's what SARS was doing was weeding out the people that didn't need to be there. And with you, after it was all over your past, they didn't offer you a contract or anything. They just they just didn't think that you could make it, which just sounds crazy. No, you you had you had to pay three thousand dollars to walk back in the door for them to train you. 
Whoa. So I, I was I was never offered a contract. You know, Johnny Swinger and guys like that were on contract making $75,000 a year to come in and sit down. And they would come in. Because when I first met Johnny Swinger, I didn't like him because he, you know, that was at the power plant because he would come in, he was under contract, he'd sit on the couch, watch some of the old wrestling tapes, get up and go home. He never got in the ring to train. He never did anything. A lot of those guys did that. And I'm here, you know, driving down three days a week, paying my own hotel, missing work, uh, not being with my wife at the time to, you know, I'm losing money to come down and train, and then I'm sitting here and having to train guys that are on $7,500,000 contracts and then get told I didn't have what it takes. So, yeah, that, was a, that place was a little frustrating. It was very unorganized. But it's great that ECW was around at that point. So how did you actually get signed by ECW? There was a tryout camp, right? There was a tryout camp that my buddy Toad, Curtis White, was, he was Lodi's tag team partner on Independence, and um, once Lodi got his gig with Raven, you know, of course, Raven and Tommy were still good friends. Um, they give Kurt a tryout, and we were in Georgia. Well, the night before, he and I were in South Carolina wrestling the Public Enemy, and he was had his tryout the next day, and he was like, "Look, after we wrestle, we'll go down to Georgia. We'll have my tryout." Um, he says. Maybe you can get in the ring. If not, you can, at least you can meet everybody. You'll get to see Steve Carino again, you hadn't, who you hadn't seen in a while. And I really didn't want to do it. I just want to go home. And he literally drug me down to Georgia for his tryout. So we walk in. I say hello to everybody. I'm out of ring. I'm catching up with Simon Diamond and Steve, who I knew, you know, Simon I knew from the Independence around the Carolinas. And uh, Toast has his tryout with uh, one of the Baldies, Angel. And it, went okay. it didn't go that great. And got done, and Nova sticks his head between the ropes and looks at me. He goes, Chris, you got your gear? I was like, yeah, it's in the car. He said, well, go get it. So I run outside and grab my gear and throw it on and hang with Simon. And we do a little five-minute spot and get done. And Simon's like, man, he said, you got some great timing. I said, well, I appreciate that. And I get out of the ring. And um, Bill Alfonso walks up to me and says, uh, are you going to be in Charlotte next week for ECW? I said, well, I said, I ain't really planned on it. He said, well, Paul's asking about you. He said, he wants you there. And all of a sudden, I, I hear Paul say, get him back in the ring. Fonzie said, who? He said, the bald one. So <laughs> Fonzie looks at me and says, yeah, it was kind of easy. Right? <laughs> Paul said, he wants you back in the ring. So I get back in the ring, and he starts sending me different guys, and I'm doing little matches with them. So uh, at the end of it, they get ready to open the doors and let the fans in. I go in the back, and I had bumped so hard and hit the turnbuckles so hard that I'm spitting up blood. So I'm in the bathroom. I'm spitting up in the sink. I'm wiping my mouth out. The door opens. I look in the mirror, and it's Paul. Paul walks straight up to me, sticks his hand out, and goes, Hey, I'm Paul. Nice to meet you. So I turn around. I said, Hey, Paul. I said, My name's Chris Wright. I said, The pleasure is all mine. He said, Where are you wrestling at now? I said, Well, you know, I'm at WCW under the power plant. He says, Are you on contract there? I said, no, sir. I said, they kind of told me I didn't have what it takes to be there. He said, well, what's your wrestling name? I said, C.W. Anderson. He goes, in Paul's classic voice, he goes, I knew it. He said, you look like <laughs> Arn. You wrestle like Arn. You, the left punch, the spine buster. He says, Chris, don't leave before I speak to you at the end of the night. I said, yes, sir. He said, you're welcome to stay backstage. Meet everybody. I said, no problem. I appreciate that. So about 20 minutes later, Jim Molino walks up to me and says, are you Chris Wright? I said, yes, sir. He said, Paul wants to see you in the back. 
So I, he takes me back in the dressing room, in the dressing rooms, and he's sitting there with Danny Dorn and Roadkill and Vito LaGrossa, and you know, reintroduces me to him and says, CW, you're tagging with Vito against Danny and Roadkill. Your third match. Welcome to ECW. That's how I got my job at ECW. Wow, nice. Uh, right place at the right time, and somebody dragging me to, you know, to there. They dragged me there, and then I just started driving myself to all the shows. What did you think of Paul? Did you did he have a, you know you know everyone has their own opinion of him, and some people think he's a mad genius or a mad scientist. What was your opinion of uh, Paul Heyman? I thought he was. I thought he was a mad scientist, mad genius, however you want to put. For him to be able to have all these ideas, and again, he's you know he's that like Steve Carino and Tommy are like that to be able to come up with ideas off the top of their head, and that's Paul. Um, three, four o'clock in the morning, you're waiting to do promos and he comes up with a different promo for everybody off the top of his head. He has all these ideas that he's had stored away in his brain that he wants to accomplish. Um, he was a great motivator. He could make you believe anything. You know, he, We hadn't got paid in three or four weeks. He could make you believe that the checks literally were in Dallas in the FedEx place where they were being held at, caught on fire, and he would go, we've got that story. And then we weren't able to get paid. So he can make you believe anything. Um, but if um, if he if he saw talent in people, because, I mean, you look at it, guys like myself, Danny Doran, Roadkill, Chris Chetty, Nova, um, Bill Wiles, Louis Dangerously, you know, guys that just don't have that quote-unquote wrestler look but are great wrestlers. Um, I've picked you know, the guys from ECW over a lot of guys because of just their heart and their knowledge for this business. And that was Paul's gift. He could take, again, I always call us the misfit toys and, and make something out of it. And he had something because, look, like you said, you know, 15, 16 years later, they're still talking about ECW. Very true. And the crazy thing is, you know, ECW hit a high point, obviously, and crazy to say then they went out of business it was kind of shocking i mean maybe not to the people behind the scenes maybe there was some writing on the wall but were you surprised when ecw went out of business because it seemed like you know out of nowhere boom no ecw no wcw i was devastated i was and i had no idea i was still we had heard the rumblings even when we were in arkansas everybody said this was our last thing and i'm you know we're on the car ride back and talking with lou and jack and i'm like man you know, Karina didn't show up for that show, or he didn't show up for those shows because they weren't getting paid. And, you know, that's all the writing on the wall, so to speak. But not me, man. I was diehard to the end because I, I was like, man, this, this this can't be it. This is ECW. ECW can't, fold. Paul will figure out something. There was something to be done. You know, he always told us that he was out in California working on a deal with USA for us. And come to find out he was out there filming the movie Rollerball. He went out there for us. Uh <laughs> After that's the story we got too, but I was you know, I went through a depression spell after that because I was on this high of being ECW and then there was nothing. Um, but there was a lot of us like that. A lot of us, nobody was told anything. We weren't given a phone call. Hey, thanks for nothing. Kiss my ass. Nothing along those lines. We weren't given anything. Just rumbles that we're done. And that's kind of. Uh the part of Heyman that I guess rubs you know a lot of people the wrong way that he you know, a little bit of a liar at times or you know he's not exactly uh, honest with everybody. Did you ever you know have any issues with him as far as 
not only the rollerball thing, but as far as like not getting paid and things like that, did that ever rise up before like the beginning of the end there? That was a lot of times he just didn't show up. It was left to Tommy to run everything. And again, that's where Tommy's genius came in because he kept us afloat for the longest. Um, it, we, he would always have, Paul would always have big meetings with us before a show and give us this rah-rah speech and still throw it in there while we weren't getting paid. And we still believed him. I don't, guys would have their own issues behind this, you know, single, you know, by themselves. But I've never, I think this is one would have been one of my downfalls as a, as a wrestler. I've never been a confrontational guy like that. Um, the only time I've, ever lost it, I had I met, I met with him and Tommy one day and broke down because I was riding with the ducks and the car had broken down. We were in Boston. I didn't know how the hell I was getting home. I was only getting paid $75 a night at the time, and I was losing money. And I said, i got to have a raise. I can't continue. Something's got to happen. And other than that, I've, you know, I, he wanted to know how much money I wanted. Um, and I said, I left it in his hands. How much am I worth to you? And then he came back to me again once I started getting pushed and wanted to put me on the contract. Because, um, you know, guys that I was wrestling were making two and $3,000 a week, and I'm making $400 a week, $500 a week, depending on how many shows we had. And I'm out there putting them over, giving them great matches. But he could make you believe anything, man. He was, that's the, the gift he had. Uh, but as far as him, he, he knew his stuff when it comes to wrestling, and that, that was his that was his forte. What do you, what do you think about seeing him still on TV? You know, but this time in a different capacity, more in the, back to being a talent rather than being you know a, either a, a writer or an executive. Uh, and still to this day, you know, again, again, another guy who's relevant to a whole new uh, audience of fans uh, now knowing him more as uh, the brains behind the brawn with Brock Lesnar. Yeah, Paul's always going to have a job in one format or another. He He's smart enough and wise enough to be able to work his way into anything like that. And he he's such a good talker um, where I don't think Brock is – you know, nobody's good at talkers. Oh, I ain't gonna say nobody, but Paul's a fantastic talker. So he's always going to have some kind of role in some format or another. But it's it, it, it's it's perfect for him. You know, that Weasley manager that's that's always neat. But you always need that Weasley manager, and Paul fits that role. But he is always going to have some part in wrestling with it. I don't think he'll do anything booking wise at, at WWE. I don't think that'll ever be given to him. But He's 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 right where he is right now. He ain't got to make any decisions. They just tell him what to do, and he goes out there and does it. From what I've seen, the few times I do watch it, it's uh, it's funny because I think a lot of fans spent years saying, "Well, they got to bring back managers. They got to bring back guys who could be the mouthpieces for monsters and this and that." And they ended up just being Paul Paulie dangerously. But now, you know, just twenty five years later. Uh, and uh, introducing a whole new facet to uh, his, you know, managerial legacy, uh, which I just think is kind of funny. But when you think about that ECW resurgence and when Paul and Tommy Dreamer brought back the ECW in 2006, uh, you weren't immediately thrust into the full-blown revamped ECW, but how were you approached about coming back uh, into ECW through the, uh, the WWE umbrella? 
Tommy called me one day and uh, said that, he said, somebody from WWE is going to be calling you soon, offering you a contract. I said, stop joking. He said, no, I'm serious. He said, we're bringing back ECW. Paul and I are going to be in control. We're going to be in charge. We're calling the shots. It's going to be just like it used to be. We're going to work our little small venues. You're going to be just going to go right back to work. It was. We're picking our feud back up. You're going to be one of our top heels. Um, and he said, it's going to be fun. He said, they're signing you for the base minimum. He said, but at the end of the year with royalties and, you know, all your bonuses from being on all the shows, you know, it's about triple to five times what you're getting paid. I said, so I ain't got to go to Ohio Valley? He goes, no. I said, and you guys got control? He said, yeah. I said, okay, well, I'll sign. So when I got signed, the first show I was on was the ECW Arena show. I worked Stabu. Um, after that night, Vince took it over. It was his control after that, and uh, it was it, we were done after that as far as I was concerned because a lot of us never got a, a shot. He had other guys bringing in that he was putting over, and uh, it was just it, it was what it was. It was I didn't really like my time there, just the way I was being used. I wanted to be used in a, in a more capacity way. It was, but really, I was happy when I got fired. That way, I could go back to Japan and work because I didn't think, and a lot of us didn't. That when they brought back ECW, it was brought back like it should have been. We should have stayed in small venues. We shouldn't have been a, a second part to SmackDown. If you could have done that, we would have succeeded in letting us do what we were doing. But it was, it was never going to be intended like that, and I was I was miserable there at that time. It's almost like uh, they used the model that they could have had for ECW ten years later, and now we have uh, the touring monster that is NXT, which is uh, global and it's in Japan, and they're in England and yep. Australia, and touring the United States, but. It seems like just from talking to different people that that's what the original vision was for ECW. Um, but sci-fi obviously needed the paranormal characters. They needed uh, to tweak some things, make it a little more sports entertaining, which I know WWE obliged uh, very, very well. And now you did get a chance to get in the ring with some of the ECW originals, uh, which is a great – I guess that, that might be the best thing to come out of the revamp ECW is the name ECW Originals because now everybody's identified as that. But you also yep. were able to get in the ring with a couple of the newer guys, you know, the WWE guys. But what was the difference between, you know, those ECW born and bred superstars versus maybe some of the WWE guys that now you were working with? They're they're just it's a, it's a different breed. They're, they wrestle a different style. Um, I got in the ring with a, with a few. I can't even remember what the one guy's name was. I think it was a French guy. And it was horrible. And I, and I never thought he was that good of a anyway. Especially when you're when you're not that good of a wrestler and you're just it's doomed to fail. I think it was like Jacques or some some I can't even remember what his name name was. Um, you know I, I knew Punk I knew CM Punk before uh, the WWE the ECW thing because we've wrestled each other on the Indies. Uh, but the other guys that I stepped in the ring with some of them it, it's just a different wrestling style. It's, it's not the same. You know when I wrestled Stevie Richards, um, I could have really good matches with him. Now I wrestled Shannon Moore. And we had good matches because I knew Shannon from the Carolinas. We all started together. Um, but other than that, the rest of them, I didn't vibe well, you know, vibe that well with because of just their style. It, they're just, again, like I said WWE style and ECW style is just two completely different styles. Yeah, I think it's great. more of a sports, a sports entertainment feel 
as opposed to what we were. And again, go back to say the hardcore and the how we wrestled is just two different things. Right, and I guess you know we can say the mortalized appearance that you had was uh, against CM Punk on TV in his initial rise, and uh, I guess you could say they kind of booked him probably the strongest because they did put him in the ring with some of the the more tenured guys to get him you know the the couple of uh, you know pretty pretty advanced wins on TV went over you know with you mm-hmm. and Justin Credible and Stevie. Um, do you think that that was uh, probably their most calculated move out of that ECW was putting the Rocket to CM Punk? Absolutely. That it was, you know, Carino told me when we were talking about it when it first started. He said he said Punk's going to be going to benefit the most out of this because it was Paul's you know boy. That was his flavor, and uh, that that was the whole intention was to let him shine. And then he did. And everybody, he, he he beat up everybody and then run it. Um, so that was that was the, the intention from the beginning was he was going to get the most out of it, and he did. He got the most success out of all that because the rest of us were just fed to him and then put by the wayside. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. I mean, it's just it's crazy to think that that was ten years ago because uh, it seems like yesterday in a way. Uh, because obviously now Punk is now he's gone. I mean he's doing uh, yes. he's doing some pretty big things from what uh, from what I've heard. But you know ECW uh, not lasting that much longer. Only a couple of years after that, obviously there were a few key guys missing, and there's some things you can kind of pinpoint that might have been the death blow. You know whether it was the incident with RVD and Sabu uh, that kind of hurting what future plans would have been, or Paul Heyman kind of clashing with Vince. But do you think that they just didn't have uh, a full-blown vision for ECW straight out of the gate? I don't think so. I, it's, if they'd have let Paul and Tommy run with it like they like they were had intended to, it would have done a lot better. It's hard to run, you know, WCW, uh, the people from WCW and ECW and WWE and have everything for them. If you'd have let us run in separate buildings and our little buildings like we did before, we would have thrived and made him so much money, putting us in those big arenas. That just wasn't ECW. It just didn't work like that, and it, it, it proved it didn't work because it didn't last long. And after the first year, they let so many of us go that they were just throwing guys from that they couldn't use at WWE or SmackDown or whatever Raw and putting them at, in an ECW thing, and it just just didn't it didn't work. Fans knew they're not stupid. They you no matter how many times you bring it back, if you call ECW, if you ain't got the originals there, it's not ECW. And that's exactly what they changed. Is they started working their guys. They brought the Big Show over. Uh, they brought over, you know, Chavo Guerrero. They brought over Kane, and they brought over guys that were not really the original ECW mold. And again, you know, more sports entertaining, more supernatural. Um, but you know, there was some there were, there were some glimmers of of success. They ran the Hammerstein a couple of times. That was obviously uh, that was an ECW mainstay uh, venue. But, you know, we've seen them come back. ECW, we already established, it's never going to die. But I think mm-hmm. the one guy left on the killing field all the time is going to be Tommy Dreamer. Do you think he was also kind of put in a bad spot that he was ascending in talent relations and ECW was his pet project? And, again, they just kind of took it out behind the uh, Titan Tower and uh, put a bullet in it pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was kind of left out there, too, because he was one of the last ones to stick around and – and then laughed at him about who can, who can deal. And he, you know, he apologized for, bring, for bringing us in because we all got let go so quick. We never blamed him. We knew we knew if he had control, 
it would have been a totally different story and it would have been so much better because of just how his vision is. But he didn't. He he said many times, I'm just a wrestler now. And it, you could tell when he said that, that it was just, there was some pain and some pissed off in there as well because they took it, they took his baby from him. That is definitely, definitely true, which is, you know, kind of stand in the way, but I guess when you were in the corporate entity, I mean, I guess that's bound to happen. But to wind it down, you know, we talked about WCW Powerplane, which was awesome stuff. I always talked about your legendary ECW run, but we didn't really talk that much about your time in Japan. I know you said you did over 50 tours, but Zero One mm-hmm. wrestling guys like Otani and Tanaka and Hashimoto, do you have a favorite match or maybe a couple favorite matches in your in your career, and did they happen in Zero One? Because if you think about some of the guys we talked about before, like RVD and Dreamer, I mean, some of those guys are some of the best wrestlers quite possibly ever. Yeah, the, um, the one I've had the most, the best chemistry with, and one of my matches was Masato Tanaka. He and I have had some matches where Carino has told me because he's said that he's watched them. He's been out to the ring as a second, you know, just sitting there watching them. That he says blew my I quit match away. He said you and Tanaka have some unbelievable chemistry. One of them, I don't know where we're at, but it was for the belt he had because I remember he knocked me out with his. Uh, flying form, not knocked me out like I got knocked out last year from Scorpio, but knocked me silly enough that I didn't know where I was at. Um, that match, it was split up in my hand. It was, we, we had 5,000 people, Japanese people standing on their feet, you know, stomping their feet. Um, that match, and quite possibly it was the first time I worked Hashimoto and Fujiwara. It was my very first tour uh Steve and I were tagging, and we were somewhere. And when they walked to the ring, it was like the Rock and Hogan had walked out in their prime. They were bombarded by fans, and being in the ring with them, you know, they're legends themselves. And the first time Fujiwara put me in his armbar, I'm sitting there selling it, and Steve goes, "You want me to come in and break it up?" I'm like, "Hell no! Let me sell it." I'm Fujiwara in the Fujiwara armbar. How many people could say that? Um, so that those two those two matches were just for the um, there's a total difference, but one of my funniest ones was Steve and I worked Hashimoto so much to where you know, Japanese custom was when you go over there, the Japanese guys make the match, they come over to you, tell you the match, and you throw in a couple of ideas. Well, we worked Hashimoto so much because he liked working us because we'd give him a good match. It was a little bit, it was comedy, and he didn't have to wrestle too hard. Where we would go. Uh, over to him and sit down, and he and he, he would say, uh, tonight, please, uh, make a match. And most of the nights, he would, always, he would always beat me with a DDT. I was always down. He was always up. So one night, um, we always joked with him, So, but we're all in the same locker room. He, we, we've uh, sitting there talking, and he says, uh, tonight, please, you, you down, me up. And I looked right at him as serious as I could be, and I went, no. Everybody in the locker room stopped, even the Japanese guys, because you're talking about this guy, Jean, telling the great Shinya Hashimoto, no. And I'm looking at him with this serious look. Um, we were in Kyoto, and he says, uh, please, uh, why? No lose. I said, my hometown. <laughs> he kind of looks, and he goes, ah, okay, tonight, Karina, so you down. 
showdown was we would we did that whole loop of fourteen of uh, fourteen cities and then I worked him probably twelve of them and he looked he said, I'll see you tonight, hometown? I said, Yes. He said, Okay, Green or something tonight, you down. That was the running joke with uh, we tell that story somewhere because it's so funny to see the look on his face and somebody finally told him no, but you know, when I said it was my hometown he just started he started laughing. Um <laughs> That's great. That is awesome, especially Hashimoto, one of the biggest stars, you know, quite frankly, ever in Japan. At one point, mm-hmm. at the Apex, he was the top draw in Japan. So what was it like working with him? I mean, obviously, you know, you say you're joking around with this stuff, but you feel that presence and that aura about him? Like, he's basically, you know, one of the biggest stars in the history of Japanese wrestling. Oh, yeah. That was, that was, he was stiff. Uh, to some extent, his kicks was like getting kicked by a mule. Um he, he took care of you, but Jesus Christ, man, he hit like a Mack truck, uh, especially in the uh, Corgan Hall shows or the really big shows when we go to wrestling. He would just, you knew it was coming. And every time I would get hit, I could hear Steve Wentz on the outside because he could feel it. it was like vice versa. Um, but being in the ring with him, you could definitely feel that presence and that aura from all the fans that were just all about him. And it was like that when the, the you'd see Muda when he'd do our shows. You know, that was the first time I would I could literally say I you see the ore around somebody. You see that glow because Muda's walking around half crippled, hobbling, and he still it's <laughs> a great Muda. He still got that presence about him. But when he gets in the ring, he he wrestles like he's 18 years old. Um, but being in the ring with Hashimoto. Man, that's a that's that was one of my honors to be able to say I was in the ring with him and uh, be able to call him a, a good friend. But you were definitely right; he, it was definitely you could feel it when you were in the ring with him, unlike anybody else I'd ever stepped in the ring with before. And another guy over there in zero one, obviously he made his name for himself in the states, but I think maybe he goes underrated. He's in zero one, and obviously right now he's making waves in NXT and hopefully be called up to the main roster soon and, uh, you know, kind of save uh, Raw or SmackDown with his uh, star power. That's Samoa Joe. What were your thoughts mm-hmm. on Joe back then? Obviously, you know, and obviously now being a huge, huge star that he is. Joe always had, he always had the talent. He he was, um, I gotta explain Joe. <laughs> uh, he was always a big prankster. He always liked picking on the Japanese young boys, never worked well with the young boys. But he, Joe, always had he had that kind of talent. It, it took, you know, for his time at TNA for it ever to develop. It didn't really develop that good at at, uh, at zero one because he was there for a little while. He just had some kind of troubles with the office. Um, what I don't know, but I just know he didn't never him and office never got along. But I'm glad to see that he's finally getting what he's deserved over there at NXT because it seems like he's doing well. Uh, I, I hadn't seen him in a while. But he, he, he always had these running things. He liked picking on one of the young boys over there, well, Kohei Sato, and Kohei was not the, the prankster type. Joe joked with him one time, putting a pack of firecrackers in his pocket, shoving them down there and setting them on fire, and which blew up Kohei's phone. Uh, Kohei's <laughs> cell phone was in there, which... Joe thought it was hilarious as hell. Kohei, he didn't find not one bit amusing about that. And 
Kohei beat the hell out of him in, a, in their next time they wrestled each other. Um, I always liked Joe. I've, I've known Joe way before, you know, Japan, when uh, I used to do the radio show out there with him and Big Swag, you know, uh, Brett Wagner. I did their radio show, so I've known Joe a long time, and I'm so happy with what, what he's doing at NXT because he's good for NXT. They need guys like that. Oh, yeah, big time. I mean, I think they need him on the main roster, too. He's, you know, he's one of the best going uh, for sure. It's interesting, some of the guys you meet along the way, like also in Zero One, uh, you had some matches with uh, Spanky, a.k.a. the Brian Kendrick as well. Yeah, as, as Dusty Rhodes called him, Spooky. He never called him Spanky. <laughs> Dusty always called him Spooky. Uh, but uh, Spanky, I, I love that guy. Man, he and I, and uh, I've worked singles with him, tagged with him, tagged against him with Loki. Um, very, very, he, for his age, he was a very smart guy for this business. For He had a good knowledge about him. And he hung around the right people. Um, it was, and I know. I think they've brought him back too. He's he's on the main roster now, isn't he? Oh yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah. I've always, uh, I always liked having Spanky around. We always had our little clique. It was myself and Carino, Samoan Joe, Frankie Kazarian, Spanky, Loki, um, Tom Howard, and Sylvester Turkey. But we all, we were always called the Merry Band of Heels because we were always just doing stuff that we weren't supposed to do over there. Had just being young kids having fun, and uh, but Spanky, he was so over in Japan because they they played that Leonardo DiCaprio Titanic thing off of him because <laughs> he kind of looked like Leo a little bit. I'm the king of the world. Yep. Yeah, that's what he would do. He would do the king of the world thing on the on the second rope, and that's, it it got over huge with him over there. But I've been I've been blessed to be in the ring with some really good guys and see them doing well now. Absolutely, and it's funny, you know, you said you, said you guys are the Mary Band of Heels, but, you know, they almost should have put you guys together as, as like, a huge uh, faction, kind of with uh, almost in, in the same vein of the Extreme Horsemen, which I kind of rushed <laughs> over before, and, and we were kind of talking about uh, Dusty for a little bit, but did the Extreme Horsemen, obviously with you and Carino, did that come about in Turnbuckle with Dusty, or was, was that before or after that? It was actually, it, it was Dusty's idea. Um because he brought so many veterans there. You had Manny Fernandez, Barry Windham, guys like that that were working for him. And he had an idea that one night Steve and I were going to, we were wrestling Dusty and Dustin, and I forgot where we were at, but we were going to handcuff um, Dustin, beat up Dusty, and Barry Windham was going to come to the ring to save him and end up turning on him. Now that night, in the northern crowd versus the southern crowd, the people in the South go, still yeah. believe, yeah, they charged the ring. I remember kicking a woman in the face as she was trying to get in the ring because they were charging the ring on us, beating up Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Dusty's idea, and he, he said it perfectly. He said, it's going to be you, Carino, and Barry Windham. You know, you guys came from the extreme, and Barry was an original horseman, so I'm going to run you guys as the extreme horseman. Um, and it started with there. We always wanted to tag with Simon Diamond anyway because we were all such good friends and in the Carolinas, and it wasn't until we got to MLW before we started doing that type of extreme horse. But the original three was myself, Steve, and uh, Barry Wyndham. 
pretty damn cool, though. And I, I kind of like, you know, the, uh, the the difference in it, which was being the extreme horsemen. You guys were, uh, you know, totally you know, playing off ECW a little bit, but also playing off the full horsemen. So it was a cool. It was definitely a cool mix. And then you, you mentioned MLW. You guys are doing, you know, basically, you know, carrying on that extreme horseman gimmick. It seems like that extreme horseman gimmick is almost real life, like you kind of said, in, in a sense, because you guys are all very close, right? Very, absolutely, yeah. That's why a lot of it worked so well. We were we were very close. I got to know Barry really well down at Turnbuckle, and of course Dusty. I got to know him a lot better, even though he did a little bit in ECW, but got to know him real well there. And it was the first. I'll tell you a quick story. The first time I wrestled with Dusty was in Turnbuckle, and it was a bull rope match. Um, and again, Southern crowds—they're eating it up. Dusty's being him, his charismatic self, and they're strapping the bull rope to us. And on the outside, I'm you know the enforcer, C.W. Anderson, this badass guy that can beat up anybody in wrestling. That, that was that was what I'm personified outside. On the inside, I'm 12-year-old Chris Wright saying, "Holy crap, I'm in the ring with Dusty Rhodes." <laughs> It wasn't until um, Dusty wanted me to get my heat on him. I hit him with a cowbell for the first time, and he goes down and holds his head. He goes, God damn, CW Arn never hit me this hard. I'm saying I'm sorry, Dusty. I'm sorry. That was my first encounter with Dusty Rose. Maybe you're knocking him out with a cowbell. <laughs> Pretty awesome, especially, you know, from a fan experience, uh, being able to almost, you know, live that out and wrestle – Dusty, you know, you know, the cowbell and stuff, but if you had to have a dream match, you know, of a guy you didn't face, obviously Dusty would, would clar- clarify as a dream match you did face, but about a guy you didn't face that was kind of a dream match of yours? Uh, Chris Benoit. That would him or Kurt Angle would be the, the two that I'd want to step in the ring with to test myself with. And, you know, I've heard so many people, at one time there was a rumor when I was at that WWE ECW that uh, Paul was talking about making that happen. and um, But those, those would be my two that I'd want to step in the ring with. Of course, well, you know, that's not going to happen, but that's, that's who I've always wanted to be able to say that, okay, I held my own with this guy because I think our, our styles were, would work well together. Looking back, you know, you've obviously, you know, we mentioned so many good guys that you wrestled. Is there, like, a favorite opponent of yours that kind of goes unsung, almost like a, an underrated guy that you consider your favorite guy to work that maybe some people wouldn't necessarily say right off the bat? Um, I'd probably have to say um, I always liked working with Lodi. Lodi was, because Lodi was one of my former students, but he and I always had some really good matches, and he very underrated in my opinion, very smart as well. Um, he and I are still close friends today, but that, that's probably one of mine that's under the radar that I consider us still having really good matches with. I'm actually got to wrestle him in February in, here in North Carolina, to be honest with you. That's a great, uh, that's definitely a great choice. And it's def- definitely somebody that, uh, wouldn't necessarily think that's a uh, that's a great one, but now obviously we've covered so much, and I, I got to give you all the credit in the world for uh, sharing so much. And really, uh, it's been so informative and a lot of fun. Uh, but this is the deep part of the interview as we start to wrap it up, and that is a twofold question because you're still active, 
but you've had a hell of a career. So usually we ask it as what is, you know, your stamp on the business or what have you left in the business so far, but also do you see yourself still competing, you know, within five years down the road? Um, the one, the one thing I want them to, one thing I want them to remember me as is the guy that went out there. And I know a lot of people say this, but I still, at my age, go out as a hundred percent. That no matter if there was five people or five thousand people, you got a hundred percent from C.W. Anderson. And you know, with all my injuries, I still have come back. You know, I've wrestled with liver failure, and and it was at the ECW arena. Um, I wanted them, you know, for the I Quit match to never die, but the fans just to know that, you know, I left everything on the table for them because that's that's how I was. I've always said I was going to try to wrestle at least until I was 50. I'll be 46 next month, so I'm going to try at least five years. My health. I know a lot of people hadn't seen a lot of me, but the guy from ECW, that guy is no longer. You know, I'm 50 pounds lighter. I'm in the best shape I've been in in a long time since college, to be honest with you. I'm down to about 220, 225. I feel fantastic. I, you know, I have a great life now. I'm married to a fantastic woman that's re- revitalized me. Um, so I love wrestling now. I had such a sour taste on it for about six or seven years, and I think it was because of who I was married to give me that. But with my life now, I, you know, I, I watch a lot of wrestling that I didn't before, and I love getting better. I love helping out the younger guys, and the more promotions I can work for, the better for the years that I got left. So five years from now, I hope you can say that I'm still going and I'm still as good as I was because I don't want to get to that point where I've lost too many steps because then it's time for me just to walk away. And I can promise you if I walk away, I don't know if I can hang around because I, you know, that's one of the reasons I don't, I don't really play ball much anymore is because I was such a, a good baseball player. I can't do it like I used to. So I'd rather not even be around it anymore because it just hurts me that I can't do it like that. So I don't know if I'll be around once I'm gone. But, you know, I said I didn't think I would wrestle to this age, but I'm still here, so we'll see. Can't say it any better than that. That's absolutely unbelievable. And uh, obviously uh, we would love to hear uh, where the uh, the fans and uh, the listeners of the two-man power trip can uh, – can find everything for C.W. Anderson, but just touching on the uh, the baseball pretty quick. Obviously, uh, your good buddy there, Steve Carino, is a hell of a Philadelphia Phillies fan. So I'm sure not only talking wrestling, but I'm sure a lot of those trips were spent uh, kind of shooting the breeze on the old baseball diamond there. There, there was, and there's actually one. You know, there's a story of us. It's on it's online about of a baseball story of us playing with a little league team and. When we would go to Japan, we would take our gloves. But he hates throw. He hates throwing with me because uh, I throw so hard. Um, even you know, I still throw in the low 80s right now, and I'm 45. I used to be able to throw, you know, in the 90s, you know, in the low 90s. But he hates throwing ball with me, and he sometimes he hates playing with me because I'm so competitive. You get me anywhere else, I'll do anything you want me to do. But you get me on the baseball field, I don't care if we're practicing. It's the World Series to me. So um, there's a lot of baseball talk with us and a lot of baseballs thrown uh, because of the love we share uh, for that for that game. But, you know, if we ever 
if I ever get to do an interview with you guys again, there's still there's definitely some more stories, and the baseball story is definitely one of the ones that needs to be heard. <laughs> I love it. Who now? Who is your baseball team of choice? I know, obviously, you know, drafted by the Padres, right. uh, but who was your team that you grew up uh, enjoying? The Cardinals. I. Um, I like the Cardinals. I did like the Padres, and again, I think it was just because I was drafted by them. But um, I, there was always a little bit of a, and I'm not one of these bandwagon guys because the Cubs won the World Series. But my childhood friend growing up um, is a Cubs fan still to the day. He's a Cubs fan, and his granddad was a diehard Cubs fan. So when we would we were playing little league and stuff like that, or playing football out in his yard, we'd go in his granddad's house and watch the Cubs on TV and would listen to it through the radio. That's how I remember being around there. I was never listening to the sound, but he'd have it turned down because he had a, some announcer he liked listening to on the radio. Um, so it was a little bit of a Cubs, especially you know when the Cubs won the World Series, that made me reminisce of those days over there. But it was the Cardinals, man, Ozzie Smith, um, God knows what's his name, Willie McGee. McGee, uh, yeah. Yeah, Jack with Clark, Ozzie Smith. Tommy Herr, Jack Clark. But I loved, I loved watching Ozzy play. Just of his, just how great he was at shortstop and high athletic, and just that flair he had to give that little bit of spice for the game. Uh, it's uh, now that's awesome. We could do a whole other show on this. So now, if you could have a mental checklist, we've talked. St. Louis Cardinals and Chicago Cub baseball with C.W. Anderson. We talked Phillies with Steve Carino. And oddly, even though he's a Yankee fan, we talked 86 Mets with Homicide. So there's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of baseball tie-ins on this show. So uh, we appreciate yep. you uh, sharing that. And as we uh, we wrap it up here, you know, please share with the listeners uh, where they can find everything for C.W. Anderson. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook is all E.C.W. Anderson. That's how you can find me. And I've always said this, anytime you message me, I will message you back. Um, I probably won't carry on a long, drawn-out conversation, but I will message you back. And, you know, if you ask a couple questions, I'll definitely respond to you. Um, anybody that follows me, you know, has liked my pictures or liked anything on there and watched me as wrestling, I appreciate you whether you hated me or you loved me. Every one of you guys are definitely appreciated because you're talking to a little country boy that grew up on a dirt road in a town less than of 100 people that's uh, been able to say that he's entertained a lot of people. So thank you, everyone. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, we won't hold it against you that you were a Cardinals fan since, uh, since I'm the Mets <laughs> fan on the show. So all three of you guys literally root for the teams that have been killing the Mets for uh, 30 years. So uh, appreciate that. But uh, no, CW, this has been awesome. I really appreciate everything. I know John does as well. And this was yeah. a lot of fun. Thank you guys for having me. It was truly a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.